I came to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish that it was already ablaze. I have a baptism I must experience. How I am distressed until it's completed. Do you think that I have, do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, I have come instead to bring division. From now on, a household of five will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will square off and against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. And mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus also said to the crowd, when you see a cloud forming in the west, you immediately say, it's going to rain. And indeed, it does. And when a south wind blows, you say, a heat wave is coming. And it does. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret conditions on earth and in the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? It's the word of the Lord. Y'all pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's a little bit of a bait and switch passage for Gary. Um, I was glad that he took it. Today's passage from the lectionary was kind of strange. I, I think it's okay to re refer to scripture as strange. Sometimes because it's strange, we can hear it in a way that we might have otherwise just glossed over and breezed past. But in this strange passage, we find a conflicted Jesus. He'd been warning them, uh, as we remember last week, about the hold that stuff has on us, that security does to us, uh, the, the, way, the ways that stuff holds our hearts when we think we're holding stuff, um, and how these concerns of the world might dull them to a sensitivity and an alertness that they'd need to encounter a God who arrives to them, who arrives to us over and over, like the owner of a house, like a thief in the night. So we're to stay awake and be ready. And Peter, Peter always asks good questions, and whenever Peter's in the, the scripture stories, it's, it's kind of a stand-in for us, Peter, the rock upon which the church is built. And Peter asks, is this parable for us or for everyone? <laughs> How big is the target that you're drawing right here, right? Uh, maybe, he, maybe he left off, like, is this parable for anyone at all, right? Um, and so Jesus launches into a rant about how divisive he can be. He's, you know, burning this place up instead of bringing peace and cohesion. He's driving a wedge, splitting up households. There, there's some commentary about mother-in-laws and, and stuff. It's there. Read it. He's pitting parents against kids. Well, Jesus, this sort of behavior doesn't seem very Christ-like. It's kind of surprising. It's kind of scandalizing. But many of us know this sort of tension with too much familiarity. These last few years have really done a number on us all, haven't they? People that we used to feel really close to, we can't really be in the same room with, or if we do, it's really hard and kind of awkward. And, you know, 
we're coming up to that string of end of the year holidays that some of us have kind of backburnered, but now we're going to have to figure out how to do this, how to how to attend to it. And isn't it that Jesus is sometimes at the heart of a lot of these conflicts? Oftentimes the most fierce and complicated conflicts happen between two people trying to know Jesus, trying to follow Jesus, trying to walk with Jesus, trying to live out of the abundant life that Jesus offers only to find others are learning to do that in ways that lead to differing and sometimes completely opposite conclusions and behaviors. The tension is there. The tension often feels untenable, like we can't hold it and it might break us. So what are we supposed to do? Can this be true? Does it need to be the way things are? Is Jesus the Prince of Peace, but is he also like the great divider driving a wedge between us? Well, first off, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's, he's not the, like the prophets might say, the Prince of Peace, peace where there is no peace. So I don't have a great answer here, but I, I know myself and I know my own impulses sometimes towards peacemaking and non-confrontation. And even though these things often serve me really well and have been used by the Lord for good purposes, they can get weaponized. And Jesus doesn't really do that. And in these words, in this strange passage, Jesus is channeling the, the, the words of the prophets. And also the, he is embodying the office of a prophet. Remember, prophets aren't like future tellers that just crystal ball the determined future. They are truth-telling go-betweens. They call people back to God. They make plain to them the consequence of their actions. For the prophet, there's, there's still time to recalibrate. There's still time to repent, to turn around, to, to return. So the prophet's goal isn't to scare. Remember last week, Jesus says, be not afraid, little flock. That's still the operative vision. But be bothered and be not afraid can coexist. They can be in the same space. So Jesus employs language from Micah 7. Micah 7 says, the day God's... The day that God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. So, so we can, those aren't Jesus's original words. He's remixing them and repurposing them and embodying them in a new context. We must always remember that for all Jesus' rhetoric, he is also our rubric. For someone to say these things, we, we have to remember that Jesus is always bearing in his own body a, a holding together and a putting back together of the world. He's making it whole. He's doing so in a way that repels not a few people and ultimately disappoints some, meets some opposition, and gets his body broken, gets him killed for it. That's what we remember together when we come down the center aisle, as we will in a little bit, and come to this table, and we receive and celebrate Christ's body broken and poured out for the sins of the world. And we might become 
Jesus' broken body. We might be called into God's shalom, which is putting this world back together, putting ourselves back together by being taken, blessed, broken, and given. It's also helpful to remember that God can often, but not always, use this sort of division, this sorting, this like spreading out all the parts of the, of the car engine <laughs> as a temporary way to reorder, to, to, to renew. Not every family division is permanent. Sometimes it really surprises us years down the road with a little bit of a remove, how in God's mercy, families can later be healed. Sometimes cracks and fissures are the way that God works into deep places to expand our hearts, to grow our vision, to, to, to use the hearts and vision and wisdom of others in their experience to add to our limited point of view. So stories like this one from Luke's Gospel remind us that where there is conflict, Jesus is often there. Where there's conflict, Jesus is and can be there. Um, I was really pleased. I, I got that strange, at least for me, chance during sabbatical to just like receive emails with y'all and find out about it and be surprised and be like, oh, that sounds cool. Wish I could do that. And so I was really pleased to hear about uh, some of the work being done while I was on sabbatical in this uh, it was called a restorative community circle. And some uh, women in our church participated in this group to hold space for difference in various ways that some in our community have been experiencing recent events. And this ranges from everything from the, the you know, if we can remember back a couple months, the formula shortage that was just weighing down moms um, to continued gun violence in places like Chicago and Uvalde and the Dobbs decision and all with this backdrop of a still continuing pandemic and a looming global climate disaster. You know, just small, small manageable things like all of those. And um, the weight of these events are often particularly like acutely felt by women, but they affect us all. And so the circle was an effort to cultivate a space because these spaces don't just happen automatically. And to do so takes a lot of skill and attention. And the goal of that time was mostly just to lament and to unload, to share some burdens um, and, and, and kind of the toll that this con conflict, this extended season of conflict has had. But not necessarily to like unwind it or resolve it or anything like that. Just to be together with God. To trust that Jesus, indescribably, kind of mysteriously, was in the, the midst of all of this sorrow and tumult and chaos. Boy, it sometimes really still feels like Jesus is sleeping when the boat is about to capsize, right? And this group, as it was described to me, like the, the hope is at cultivating these spaces, we, we continue to build kind of capacity and facility and to build muscles for trust and solidarity. That we can say with our sisters and brothers in Christ, like, I don't exactly know what you're feeling or sometimes I can't exactly know what you're feeling, but, and also like, I don't necessarily 
agree with where you're coming from, but I am with you and Jesus is with us. And this is a time and here is the place where we can experience a measure of Christ's hope and healing and hospitality. So it was really encouraging um, to, to, to begin some of that work and hopefully we'll, we'll have some other outlets for experiencing some of that work and the fruit. So then in our passage, Jesus shifts to talking about mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws warring to talking about the weather. <laughs> Maybe that's what you talk about when you run out of things to talk about. <laughs> it kind of sparked a throwback for me. We, we have some Florida State people here. When I was in college more than 20 years ago, um, I excitedly signed up for my, the only science class I needed to take in college, and it was Meteorology 1010 introduction to the atmosphere, right? <laughs> that first semester I was introduced to the inexact science of predicting the weather. <laughs> Just one semester of meteorology and you're an expert, right? You think for how like sneaky hard that class was, it was also sneaky early. Like it never sounds that early when you're coming out of high school. It sneaks up on you. You think that we would be better at predicting the weather by now. I specifically remember one day I, I took the lab too, which involved basically just going up on the roof of this this <laughs> class building on campus and just like recording temperature and barometer readings and stuff. And you're doing all that, like we're doing all this one day and there's like a Florida storm just like right it felt like you could touch it, you know, like it was like right there. And you're looking at the barometer readings. It's like, oh, it's a pretty nice day, you know? <laughs> so I think Jesus is talking about something like that phenomenon here. Jesus criticizes them for knowing a little bit about today's weather, but not really understanding the climate. They can't understand what time they're in. Like, not just where they are, but but when they are, how God is showing up to them, how God is arriving, and what that might require of them. I think of MLK that uh, says, the time is always right to do what is right. And, 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 and they might even believe that, but what time even is it? Honestly, I think this is one of the better cases for following the liturgical calendar. And if you're around Oak, you'll hear a little bit about this because it is an alternative timeline for us as a people. It reminds us and it trains us and sometimes it jars us um, out of the way things are. If you do it for long enough, you start to feel kind of weird um, and, and it kind of acquaints you with constantly being a little out of sync with what the culture is doing and that's okay. Um, this is particularly operative in times like now when pumpkin everything has happened, even though it's August, or like when we're still singing Christmas songs in January when like the culture has moved on to the next monetizable event, maybe down that day or something, right? And so it helps us pay attention to the signs of the times by, by taking us out of time. Um, by, by putting us in a new time and, and by spiraling us into God's time. This helps us pay attention to the signs of the times and, and the products of our behavior, but also not be beholden to them. 
You see, this passage shows us that the one who unites God and humanity, that's Jesus, also causes great division. This helps us when we're trying to read the signs of the times to not get too precise, to not get too hung up on, on what is going on and results. When, like We read them, but we hold them pretty loosely. This makes our feelings really important, but not utterly reliable. It reminds us of that. Um, it, it makes the people around us really vital to understanding the signs of the times, but also not immune to also being short-sighted or like the subject of a lot of groupthink. Um, it makes even the ways we like read good and great and amazing things like our interpretation of God's word, which is durable and reliable and bears witness to God, who is the same the, yester the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it makes even that susceptible to like cult cultural captivity, right? So, so we're, we're learning, and, and we call this discerning, where we're learning what to trust and how to trust. We're, we're learning what to rely on and, and, and how to read the signs of the times. We're learning how to see and engage with God who comes to us. So as Bob Dylan famously put it, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And I think that's true to an extent because God has given us intuition and wisdom and discernment. God has given us each other. God has given us the Holy Spirit, maybe most importantly, the Holy Spirit that animates us, breathes new life into us, guides us. But like the weather, our walking with God is an imprecise science. Maybe it's more like an art, like, like it has, it has uh, it's measurable, but it also involves feel. Because faith is learning to discern, learning to discern in hope. Faith is learning to trust. It's learning what to hold on to, but also what not to hold on to, what not to trust completely. Learning how to become trustworthy people, even when we're unsure. That's what faith is because we've been included in the life of a trustworthy God by the faithfulness of Jesus. Um, James K. Smith um, talks about time and discernment. He says, discernment is not a baptism of the status quo. To read the Spirit's swerves in human history is not a matter of trying to sanctify when we are as what God wants. Discernment is naming when we are unveiling the systems and structures and histories that got us there, and then divining the avenues for that give hope. So to guide a faithful future, we have to know the past, we have to know the beginning, we have to know the end, and we have to know where we are. And we need to build in expectation for God to interrupt, for God to arrive, for God to come to us. You can see all this is pretty unwieldy stuff, walking in faith. It should make us heed the words of James 1.19 that say that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because none of us have mastered this. All this involves building trust. That takes a ton of time. It takes a lot of risk. And it takes a lot of trust. Trust that God is with us. Even when things aren't tidy, maybe especially when things aren't tidy, God is with us. In the presence of suffering and change and uncertainty and trauma and 
all of those things, exactly there, exactly then, God is with us. Not in a way that we can manipulate, but in a way that we can trust. In a way that we can become attuned to. In a way that we can begin to improvise off of the raw material that we've been given and the people that we're with. I think to do this, we, we kind of learn about three things. We learn first how to experience God's presence. We can't, we can't and we won't do this alone. God's presence anchors us and leads us. I think of the Israelites' time in the, in the wilderness, a long time being led by God, the God that was with them in a way that was reliable but uncanny, smoke by day, fire by night. A God that provided for them, gave them manna. Manna, manna just means, what is it? <laughs> so we were trying to describe this to the kids the other day. They're like, so it's, it's kind of like, like Cheez-Its, right? And it's like, mm, maybe. Um, and, and when we can begin to learn about God's presence and rely on God's presence, we, we know that we'll have enough. We'll also resist impulses to, to hoard and capture and control and stockpile. So we need to learn how to experience God's presence. We also need how to learn how to hear God's word. First and foremost, God's word, when you see it, and it's a capital W, God's word, that is Jesus. The word made flesh, the image of the invisible God. It is Jesus whose voice spoke creation into being and who is bringing in his very body the new creation. It is Jesus who continues to call people like Lazarus out of the grave. And also God's word is God's word in scripture that bears witness to God's being and God's work. We need to learn how to hear God's word. For, for us, that, that might be Memorizing scripture. It might just be drilling down on one passage. It might be committing to read, reading with others the whole scope of scripture in, in a period of time, the whole New Testament before the end of the year, the whole Bible in a year. Uh, it, it is getting this into our bones. God's people has a, a deep history of this. Uh, Israel is built around the, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. <laughs> And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's, there's this kind of running theme that makes its way into the New Testament of, of God's people voraciously ingesting scripture. The prophet Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll. John the Revelator is, is told to eat this book. And then we metabolize it in a way that, that makes us like Jesus so that when we're pricked, when we're pressed, when we experience trial, what comes out of us are the words of the psalmist. That Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Psalm 22. That, that ends with a, a hopeful tilt towards God's presence and God's intervention in this world. So God's, God's presence, God's word. We also need how to learn how to be and to re reside among God's people. Because there's wisdom here in this room. Because God's spirit is with us, there is wisdom here. There's more than enough. There's, there's also difference here. 
The presence of difference does not mean the absence of God's presence or wisdom or truth, but rather the dwelling of God's Pentecostal spirit. The spirit at Pentecost that that made them all speak their own language but understand each other. They weren't even speaking the same language, but they were hearing the same. That, That Pentecostal spirit is making us new, each of us and all of us together. It hints that Jesus is actually in the thick of all these things. Jesus, the one who Colossians reminds us, is the one who holds all things together. So the goal is not uniformity, it's not unanimity, it's not whiteness, it is not sameness. It is unity and difference. It is mutuality and care. It is a common heart aimed towards Jesus. It's learning to think of others above ourselves, like Philippians 2 reminds us, or to bear each other's burdens, like Galatians 6 reminds us. And doing it this way holds an intensely higher degree of difficulty. (laughs) When you're looking at someone else, and it takes a lot more of an imagination to realize how you're bound to them and with them than when you look at someone else and you just see a mirror image looking back at you and repeating back to you the things that you want to hear. It takes a growing imagination to see a family resemblance in someone that is nothing like you. Um, I just want to close with with a quote um, from a bishop and missiologist, uh, Leslie Newbegin, who, who I think puts all this together to say that the only possible hermeneutic of the gospel, the, the only possible interpretation or way to communicate the good news of Jesus is a congregation who believes it. The only way that we can, we can share the gospel, that we can be the gospel, is to believe this gospel, this good news together by, by welcoming this Jesus, this disruptive, <laughs> divisive, amazing Jesus in our midst, by, by learning to, to experience God's presence, to, to get into God's word, to be God's people together who are struggling together, or holding on to Jesus together, who are paying attention to what God is up to and joining in. Can you all pray with me? Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for words that comfort and words like today that stagger. Um, Lord, keep us listening. Um, Bend our ear to hear your voice, and if necessary, dig out our ears so that we can hear you better. Thanks for these people, these friends, these um, sisters and brothers, these neighbors, these strangers, um, who are all part of the work that you're doing and the people that you're making. Lord, bind us together. Grow us in love and faithfulness. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.